to the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. My name is Justin Goss, Editor-in-Chief of GPPR, and as always, I'm joined by my silent partner, Senior Interview Editor Kevin Barslow, and we have the privilege today of being joined by GU Politics Fellow Grover Norquist. How are you doing, sir? Doing reasonably well. Glad to hear it. So you were unfortunately absent from our Meet the Fellows podcast. Ah, yes, I was. I Ah. was heading to Iowa for some reason. Oh, Fun stuff. Good trip. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, not Iowa. I have to go to do the Bill Maher show. Oh. That's what it was. Even more fun, potentially. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, we just wanted to ask you to start with the same warm-up questions that we asked all the other fellows. Okay. Um, so quickly, one at a time. Um, so what's the one food stuff item that you cannot live without in your life? Cannot live without. I guess chicken. Chicken? Just of any yeah. kind? I like chicken. Fair enough. Me too. Um, and then, can you tell us a little bit about your discussion group and what you're hoping attendees are going to get out of it this semester? Sure. We're going to talk a lot about coalitions and the structures and politics. Uh, people are vaguely aware of the two political parties, but within each party, there are different coalitions, their structures. Organized labor is bigger than the Democratic Party. Um, and uh, trial lawyers on the Democratic side, political machines in cities um, for Republicans, everything from the homeschoolers to the Second Amendment groups to uh, self-employed groups. Um, There are structures and financial organizations that drive politics, direct parties, um, and that work in coalition with each other and, and with the two political parties. And they come and go. Issues come and go. Uh, sometimes issues become bigger, more important, uh, move more votes. Other times they recede into the background and what was a big issue. I mean, people lose elections. Half the people who go into an election lose. Mm-hmm. And everybody was planning on winning, or almost everybody was planning on winning, which means they misunderstood where the electorate was and how to talk to them. And how to convince them to vote for them. So they, they often they miss where voters are or what the vote moving issues are. Issues are forever. Vote moving issues are not forever. Hmm. Um, some issue may be there, but sometimes it's a vote moving issue and sometimes it's not. The anti-war movement in a time of peace is not a vote moving issue. Uh, in the middle of a war, it can be. So um, I think a better understanding of the role that issue groups and issue clusters and and the structures you know buildings staff have with each of those so just to clarify so is it more a political strategy type uh discussion group or are you are you trying to get more into the weeds of policy and bureaucracy uh no it's how to how to win elections and how to pass legislation i mean you have to decide which team you're on but then once you've done that how do you how do you move the ball forward Got it. Understood. Um, all right. Well, those were our two warm-up questions for you. Uh, I don't eat scallops. You don't eat scallops? No. Um, that's about it. That's the only thing I don't eat. I'm trying to, th- trying to think. See, you, that, that, that's where you were going on the, with, <laughs> on the earlier question. No, you, yeah, you, uh, you, uh, you, nailed, you nailed the first two, um, but I, pr- I appreciate the, the added depth there. And red is my favorite color. Red is your favorite color. Um, purple is mine. Glad, yeah. glad to hear it. Um, so, uh, listeners who might be familiar with some of your work, um, might know, um, 
that you're historically in favor of small government arguing that it better promotes liberty and economic efficiency. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like limited, competent government can sensible make liberty easier. Right. I possible. Think, I think mo- I think most people yeah. want want their governments to be competent in some way or another. Um, so. Off of the economic efficiency angle, what are your thoughts on free trade and some of the better known free trade agreements to our listeners, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and NAFTA? Well, the most important free trade agreement that the United States ever engaged in was the Constitution, because the Constitution says that in your 13 states or 57 states, uh, you can't uh, interfere with cross-border trade. You can't have taxes and regulations that stop Massachusetts from selling things in California. And since we're the largest market in the world, um, the success of the United States is a success of free trade and in the largest possible area you have. And then we've looked to expand that somewhat. Um, But the history of the United States has not been one of being very good at free trade outside the borders of the U.S. I mean, we raised all, almost all our money uh, on tariffs uh, up until World War I uh, and the yes. construction of the income tax. Mm-hmm. Uh, we sold a lot of land, that was helpful, but that was 10% or so of, uh, of what the government raised. So, uh, and we've had conflicts on trade. This, this is not new. Um, the first time the South Carolina militia was called out was in uh, 1830-32 because of the tariffs. And um, the government reduced the tariffs because South Carolina had gotten their guns out. And they yep. had a very large national convention, like a constitutional convention. I think it was held in Massachusetts because um, there was a free trade movement in all of the states, not just in the South, although the South was more screwed by tariffs than the North was. Um, if we hadn't had slavery, we'd have still had the Civil War, just on the tariff issue alone. So it's been a big issue um, because the government decided to use an income tax rather than tariffs. It receded somewhat uh, because after World War II, the rest of the place was pretty flattened and not competitive. So we acted as if we didn't have competitors overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many cases, we didn't. Uh, but now, I would argue that what has happened is we've hurt our own manufacturing and and other and productivity in general with um, union work rules, which make our steel and auto industries less competitive, less productive. The trial lawyer laws we have, which no other country has stupid tort law like ours. Uh, even the countries who make fun in Europe don't have tort laws like us. Um, the environmental laws where other countries pass environmental laws, but we enforce them. Um, and, uh, you know, the, and so those are the, <clears throat> and taxes. And so we do four things to shackle American companies, workers, um, to the pier. And then when the tide comes in, they're screwed. Um, and the pro- and then they get mad at the tide. No. You'd be fine if you didn't have these four things weighing you down. Mm-hmm. Work rule, unionized work rules, um, which are in contracts and therefore very difficult to change. Tort law, which allows people to sue for 
any stupid reason, uh, environmental regulations and other regulations too, but the environmental ones are the ones that are most expensive right now. Um, and, and taxes and our corporate income tax is way out of line with the rest of the world. Uh, so there, in those four zones, we do things worse than other countries. What we do better than other countries is open trade within the borders of the United States, property rights. Um, you own land, you own everything underneath it, whether it's gravel or oil or natural gas or uh, gold. And in Europe, if you own land, the king owns everything that's underneath you. So why would you let anybody drill a hole in your backyard? You don't see any point in that. Why would you drill a hole in your backyard and look for anything? You don't own it. Right. Um, so it really has messed up Europe for all of the extraction uh, industries uh, that are available. Uh, so that said, <clears throat> the United States is in good shape if we open up to a broader uh, trade, but we have to fix our problems. Um, the, I think the last several campaigns, going back to the Reagan years, where people arguing we can't have free trade, we can't compete. And then they would argue we can't compete because Bangladesh people get paid very little money. Well, if, if getting paid very little money was where we put the manufacturing, all the jobs would be in Bangladesh, but they're not because it's about labor productivity, not about the cost of one person for one hour. Right. How productive are they? The United States, we pay a lot of people more than anybody else, but if they're more productive than everybody else, they're worth every penny and they, they make you more competitive, not less competitive. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not wage rates, although I understand it's very easy for people who don't think of this whole thing holistically and so on. What's the difference? We get paid more than they do. We can't compete with them. End of story. Except there are other factors, and I would argue that uh, the four that I listed on um, labor union work rules are tort law, um, federal taxes, and the uh, issue of regulations weigh us down and make us not competitive. And then people blame free trade for damage we do to ourselves. And all the politicians agree with that because they don't want to point to themselves and say, I'm killing your son's chances to have a job. I'm keeping your income down with my stupid laws. They want to say some foreigner did it because uh, foreigners can't vote against you. So um, I tend to, I'm in favor of expanding trade, but in order to make that case, you have to first disabuse people of the lies politicians tell to absolve themselves of the responsibility of the damage they've done to the American people. So you, so you think you're in, you in general think that free trade is a good idea, but that the other policy structures in in the way uh, sort of taint the economic productivity associated with it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Going swimming is a good idea, but you got to put water in the pool before, <laughs> before you dive in. You're nailing the nautical metaphors. Yes. Um, or aquatic, excuse me. Um, the so you you brought up the uh, nullification crisis when you talked about South Carolina in the in the early 1800s. Um, so a lot a lot of economists, uh, even those who support free trade, believe that there are certain winners and losers within the U.S. that are created when we op open the borders to free trade, um, which is somewhat evinced by South Carolina's outcry and your your uh, claim that the Civil War might have happened because of the tariffs, uh, not simply because of slavery. Do you think that it's the responsibility of any entity, government or otherwise within the U.S. to compensate those losers? 
Well, when the government creates the problem in the first place and then it steps away, they have granted monopoly rents to some people. And then if they stop granting those monopoly rents, you have to compensate people for the monopoly rents they had. Uh, people were given the right to sell, the monopoly right to sell uh, tobacco or peanuts and nobody else, if you didn't have a tobacco or peanut allotment, you couldn't. And then when you wanted to move to a free market and not have uh, laws that said you need a taxi medallion to drive a taxi, you need to compensate the person who'd been given an advantage over everybody else. Well, that's an interesting moral question, and it says I, I tend to doubt it. <laughs> um, I've, I've been letting you screw your competitors for years and consumers, and now I'm going to stop giving you that power to hurt consumers and your competitors, and I'm going to compensate you for the loss of what you came to think of as your right to screw mm -hmm. consumers and your competitors. Um, that said, that's in some sort of grand moral sense. If you have to pay off the medallion owners to get to partially in order to get to a society where everybody can be Uber or Lyft or taxi cab drivers, but mm -hmm. nobody has a monopoly uh, rent on the ability to make a living driving a car. Um, sure, for prudential reasons, you might do that. Um, it's not justice. Um, although then there's the weird case, the guy who bought a taxi medallion last month is not getting any monopoly rents. He paid somebody else for their monopoly rights. Right, for a whole and so, Yes, and so what he has is a whole bunch of debt, and the monopoly that he's been granted just barely, uh, if the guy's bought and sold for the right price, he just barely covers his costs, um, so he, plus he, labor. So the they've always passed some sort of trade adjustment law, it's awfully messy. The, the, the idea, the hubris that I know if you open up more trade with France that these people will win and these people, you don't know that. And the fact that somebody gains a job or loses, or nobody says, you know, I gained a job, let me pay you for it. Um, when free trade opens up, the guys, the winners don't have to pay anybody um, for having been winners. Uh, but it's also just not true that you know in a free and open society with 300 million consumers and millions of businesses how the ball bounces when you open it up. The best you can do is, is uh, compensate the loudest squeaky wheels that could have gotten in the way of moving to a more open society. So you give the money and you say it's for compensation when it's really just a political payoff. Uh, even though there, there could be some actual loss that for which people are being compensated for. But this is a guess. This is a guess. You're saying epistemologically we have no way of sifting through the market complexities to figure out who actually won and lost. Yes, and how much. Right. Okay. So um, as messy as it is, I, I've always been in favor of paying that bribe in order to get to the other side, which is a more open and growing society, in which case everybody benefits. And um, I, I would argue that any sort of real opening, not of more trade benefits everybody in the country over time, including mm -hmm. the guy who changes jobs because he was in a job that really didn't exist in the real world. Um, and at some point, that was gonna people were gonna figure that out, whether it was a domestic competitor or 
a change of, you know, we don't make that anymore because we don't buy that anymore because it's too expensive. Right. So we do something else. And it's not some foreigner who decided to take your job. It's other people going, I'm not paying the, expand, the, the hiked price, the, the political price rather than the market price. Um, so politically, it's never bothered me uh, to have the trade adjustment thing. And, and, and if it makes people more comfortable with a dangerous dangerous with an unknown future that there will be if, if something odd and dramatic happens to you that you'll be somewhat protected or made whole um it's sure why not understandable um so in narrow, narrowing down on a subject of particular interest especially given the last election some economists also argue that immigration is a form of trade where it's the free flow of human capital across borders. Um, do you have any thoughts about immigration and immigration reform within the U.S.? Yeah, I would argue that yeah, people are always saying American exceptionalism, and you wonder what they're talking about. They wonder what they're talking about. Um, the United States was blessed with wide dispersion of property ownership. And because of that, good property rights, property rights to the water and the river that runs through your land, but it also runs through somebody else's land. You have to figure out riparian rights on who's in charge of what water, right? I'm from California. I'm well versed. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. Liquors, liquors for drinking, waters for fighting over. <laughs> um, and, uh, and those are developed over time. To by the time you get out to California, there were no towns and cities in the gold rush. People self-organized. You on that, you on that. Who says? Well, we all say collectively. We figured it out. We made it. Um, we made it work. And so we did property rights better than anybody else, and made them more secure. Um, we tend to have lower taxes than everybody else, largely because we didn't have kings and largely because we didn't have wars uh, and accumulated wars and constant wars. Mm -hmm. um, and so the government was smaller. You had more property rights. You had equality before the law because we didn't have kings and aristocracy and everybody just showed up. There wasn't, there wasn't any hierarchy. Um, and the other thing, and we had a free trade market in the very large American economy. And the other one is we had open immigration, uh, more than any other country uh, that you could think of. Partially, I mean, you had to go a long way to get here. It's not like walking across the border into Switzerland. Um, you, so it wasn't easy, but it was open and people could come. And we didn't have any laws restricting immigration to about 1880 with the anti-Chinese, the right, Chinese, Chinese Exclusion Act. Act. Yep. Uh, then they tried to do the same thing to Japanese people. Uh, and then the 1820s, they decided they didn't like Italians and Jews and Eastern and Southern Europeans uh, and tried to restrict that. Right. Um, but we had a growing economy and a growing um, middle class all during periods of very strong immigration. Um, because that was, people are both consumers and producers, uh, and they create their own jobs. There isn't some finite number of jobs, and if another guy comes into town, we have to divide up the income. Um, so, and, but when the economy gets tight, or when organized labor tries to get monopoly rents in certain um, 
skilled uh, working areas um, and keep out competitors. They don't like domestic competitors. Uh, hence, the Davis-Bacon Act to keep blacks out of the construction industry in the 1930s. Uh, or, and then like foreigners coming in. Um, so there have been efforts to, to limit um, or prohibit in the case of Japan, China, uh, immigration, all of which have been harmful to American economic growth. Um, but I, while I fully understand that just as free trade gets blamed for the crimes of the American government, against its own people in setting up laws that hurt people and then when they can't compete with foreigners they think the foreigners did something to them whereas their government did. Uh, similarly immigration becomes a sore point when the government has done so much damage to, to guys and, and there aren't new and expanding jobs and then some new guy comes in and you go the reason I don't have a job, the reason my cousin doesn't have a job is because it's a Mexican. No, it's actually because of American tax and regulatory policy and labor union rules and trial wars. Um, and if there weren't any foreigners, those problems would be plaguing Americans. Uh, and so when you slow down immigration during the Great Depression, it didn't make us better off. The Great Depression was the first recession the federal government ever decided to fix. Mm -hmm. And it lasted somewhere between 10 and 15 years, depending mm -hmm. on how you want to count it. Uh, so uh, I am very much in favor of getting tax policy and the regulatory policy such that we have Ronald Reagan 4% a year growth instead of Barack Obama 2% a year growth. Uh, during Reagan's years, we had lots of immigration and actually an immigration reform package that was popular because nobody thought that anybody was stealing their jobs. During the Obama years, he was out deporting more people than than uh, Trump could imagine deporting or could ever think of deporting, uh, and it wasn't complained about. Um, and so uh, the immigration, like trade, is a difficult issue because there's misdirection of what's causing the problem. The, the, the problem is there. People say, there's no problem. Yes, there is a problem, but it's not what you think it is. Um, and I think that when we see H-1B visas, we bring in high-tech guys, in effect, high-skilled people. Those people create jobs. Um, and at both ends of the, um, the bell curve, you need more people. You need more young people. You need mm -hmm. unskilled people because you can't have a restaurant without the really cool chef, and you can't have a restaurant without people with busboys. And then there are all these guys in the middle who get jobs too, but you, you, you don't... You don't do it with just a chef sitting in a corner. You don't do it with just uh, busboys. You just don't do it with just waiters and waitresses. Right. Um, and but and that's true for a whole series of industries where you look at uh, the high tech industry and a lot of people who started these companies and created thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands of jobs for Americans came from someplace else. Um, and. <clears throat> the guys who wait in line at five o'clock in the morning to get picked up to go work on a construction site and build houses and and, and work um, all um, make the economy stronger for everybody. But it is a very difficult concept to understand. And um, the then people worry about assimilation, but the best way to assimilate is, is through 
um, through work. I mean, that's where you meet people that insist you speak English because they don't speak what you speak. They, they may have a second language too. They may be from Czechoslovakia and somebody's from China, but the language they're going to talk to each other is in English. Um, so work much more than school uh, is the greatest assimilator uh, for American people. And the faster and the more people work, the more they assimilate. Um, so I, th I think that, uh, that some immigration is self-evidently obvious, even, even as difficult it is to get sometimes immigration. The STEM high-tech guys, where right. the company says, we need more people who can write computer code. Who wants the job? There's nobody who can do it, but there are a whole bunch of people from India who know how to do it, so they'll come and do that. Right. Um, and the other part of that is is migrant labor, labor that there's, there's a job for two months um, working in agriculture here, and then there's no job for the next 10 months. And it's tough to say, well, why don't the people in Wyoming take that job? What, and quit being something else for sure. two months while you, um, you know, uh, doing agriculture work or running a ski lift or a, um, a beach, you know, a hotel. Sure. Uh, again, it's only a few months a year. And those, those sorts of jobs that are temporary and move around are much more easily meshed by immigrant labor or... I mean, if we'd give up on having high schools, you could have high school students do it. Right. Probably more useful to you than high school. Um, but until we, as long as we have high school, you still need uh, guest workers to come in and do that sort of stuff. Right. So it's a very interesting set of debates, confused by the fact that during a period of slow economic growth, people are uncertain who to lash out at because their cousin doesn't have the job or they don't have the job. Right, and this easy, presents an easy target. We'll get you out of here on this last question. Sure. So combining the subject of, tar of tariffs, free trade, and immigration, um, President Trump has proposed that we raise a tariff on imports from Mexico in order to build a wall meant to restrict immigration from Latin America as a whole, Mexico specifically. What are your opinions on that? Well, several interesting thoughts I'll put together. One is... Tariffs are not paid by foreigners. American tariffs are paid by American consumers. And so this idea that we're going to, if Mexico sells us something for a dollar and we have a 20% tariff, so it costs a dollar 20, that somehow Mexico is paying for that? No, some American who buys cotton or uh, a car or strawberries or whatever is being sold across the border pays 20% more than they otherwise would. Not only that, but, but the, Amer the Americans who don't buy any products from Mexico, but buy um, cotton or cars or strawberries, pay 20% more because the domestic manufacturers go, you know what? <laughs> our competitors are hobbled by this 20% tax. We can raise our, maybe, all, maybe not all the way to 20, but as high as 20, you could raise it to um, and still be okay. Mm -hmm. So it raises prices for everybody. This is what happened to Argentina when they went from one of the wealthiest countries in the world to one of the least wealthy countries in the world just with um, tariffs. Um, and the, the sad thing about tariffs is that you, unless you travel outside the country, you never see the damage the tariff is doing. You don't get that the prices you're paying are non-competitive with the rest of the world. Uh, and until you're less competitive the rest of the world, more than your tariff, 
that's when you sort of feel like <laughs> right till then you don't you don't somehow see it um, when you realize the rest of the world has just gone past you. Uh, so uh, I think that what, what's helpful for Trump is that he's trying to reduce the regulatory burden in the country. Mm-hmm. He's trying to expand energy and make it less expensive mm-hmm. in the country. He yet he hasn't talked about this, but I know that his guys are in favor of tort reform as well. Um, he is interested in reducing the, the regulatory burdens and the tax burdens on companies and individuals. All of those things will reduce the problem of slow growth and, and less economic uh, progress in terms of per capita uh, pay and, and uh, GDP that reduce people's fear of expanded trade or immigrants. Uh, and we can have a, a much more economic conversation about those issues, about how it helps or how it doesn't help and where. Um, but you can't have that when people are hurting. And we've been growing at 2% a year since the recovery started six months into the Obama administration. Uh, when Reagan turned the country around after hit the recession that he had in 82, he grew at 4% a year for 10 years. Um, and that's what you need to do in order to have the political freedom to have a straight conversation with people where you don't get sidetracked into, no, there's a problem today, and I think it's caused by people in Czechoslovakia as opposed to politicians here in D.C. And the politicians lie to people regularly about whose fault it is. They regularly tell you it's not their fault. Um, So I think Trump's solution to the problem lower taxes, less regulation, fewer lawyer problems, fewer labor union expenses, um, is exactly the right solution. The, and, so he's, and he says to people, there's a problem. He speaks to them sometimes, and you think it's immigration, and you think it's um, uh, issues of free trade. Um, and I hear you. I just think that you could close the borders to trade and immigration, and all of our problems would get Worse, hmm. not better, because you haven't uh, you haven't fixed the underlying problem of the regulatory costs, the tax costs, the trial lawyer costs, uh, and the the labor union make work rules cost. You would just add on to it the challenges of not having um, the trade and not having immigration. Seems like there was a theme for just the last, the last bit. It seems like there was a theme running running through this uh, conversation of a trade-off between political expediency and actual Mm -hmm. policy efficacy. Um, Yeah, I mean, in politics, you have to convince voters. You don't have to convince some economists this is a good idea. You have to convince the majority of voters this is a good idea. And those are not the same project. And so I think it's very important that you campaign, talk to the American people, tell them what you're going to do, what you want to do, win their votes, then govern in a way that both shows them what works and convinces them that you're, you were honest with them in the last campaign, then you get elected again, and then you govern again. And so campaigning and governing are a seamless garment that, that, are, that, that flow together. And too many politicians, uh, the big surprise to me after four years of Reagan was that George Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, yes thought that uh, campaigning is this icky thing you do 
because you deserve to govern. Mm. It's like sex is icky, but you want to have children, so that's a <laughs> sex thing. But but you don't talk about sex, and you just work your way through it, and then you have children because that's so you can have a family. Um, and that governing, that politics is the icky thing through which you then do the good stuff of governing. And he felt that telling people that he wouldn't raise taxes and then raising taxes was okay because the one was gaining power and the other was exercising power. And in a free and open society, you need to be honest with people about where you're going, why you're going there, and the help you need from them. Um, and there's very little point in being one of these Old Testament uh, prophets who yells at everybody about what a bunch of idiots they are. Usually they get killed or something. Um, and I was never rooting for them because I thought <laughs> yelling at people, telling them they're idiots, they have to do exactly what you say without convincing them is not a terribly useful way to spend your time. <laughs> people will throw rocks at you. Um, better to say, here's what I think we're trying to do and we might want to do that and walk people through and bring them forward um, with you. And by the way, if you're wrong, you lose the election. Or even if you win the election because you, in effect, lied to people about what would work, when people find out it doesn't work, you lose the next election. But so, hopefully no one throws rocks at you. Yes. By trial and error, um, you get to a better place. Bad ideas fall off to the side and good ideas move forward. And that, that works as long as you don't legislate bad ideas so that you can't undo them. Excellent. Mr. Grover Norquist, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the GPPR podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in more, check out gppreview.com, our Facebook page, GPP Review, and our Twitter, at GP Policy Review.